0: Guys, let's go to the Bible. We're going to turn to Mark chapter 15 and continue our sermon series entitled Mightier Than I. If this is your first time at Grace City in Portland this morning, or if you're new-ish, um, I hope this is helpful. I hope you're able to jump right in. And um, you're very welcome to grab one of our NIV paperbacks out of the, uh, any of the boxes in one of the two central aisles there. The words will also be on the screen. This morning we're going to cover chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer So that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he, that is Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns They put it on him. They began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him. And kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. I've entitled my sermon... Uh, Once again, this morning, religion, politics, popular opinion, and the kingdom of another kind. Let's talk religion and politics this morning, shall we? It's always a fun one. (laughs) Don't get too nervous, all right? It's going to be okay. Something to notice right at the outset. When the gospel, uh, when, when the writer of the gospel of Mark, Mark, uh, there's certain instances in Mark where he zooms in and begins to go into great detail about what's taking place. Uh, for the most part, the gospel according to Mark is a very fast-paced uh, story. It's, it's, it's sort of the action comic version of the, the account of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. Bam, 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 he's going here and there and saying this and that, and, and it's just very fast-paced. But then occasionally, it's like he pans way out, or rather zooms way in, and you begin to get specific details given to you about uh, people, names, uh, events, and that's what's happening right now. All of a sudden, the action slows way down. And Mark takes virtually a couple of chapters to describe what really amounts to just a few hours of actual events. So what are we meant to catch here? Well, there's several key characters for one, and then a whole lot of interaction between them. So let me see if I can sketch this out. Number one, we have the chief priests. Uh, Of course, we have Pilate. Or uh, Pilate for all of my fitness enthusiasts out there. And then we've got the crowd. We'll start there. Um, There's a lot of interaction happening between these characters, if you will. First of all, we have the chief priests who are manipulating the crowd to get Jesus crucified. Um, But we also know from just like a chapter ago, or a couple of chapters ago, chapter 12, verse 12, in the Gospel of Mark, that um, at one point in time, we're told that the, the priests or the leaders of the temple, were actually afraid of the crowd. They knew that if the crowd um, was pushed too far, or was challenged too severely, they could rebel. And so there's some sort of mutual manipulation happening between the chief priests or the rulers of the temple and the masses. Of course, you have Pilate over here, who's also working very hard to... um, satisfy the crowd is what it says in verse 15 or placate the crowd he knows that if he doesn't let them have their way again he, he could have a riot on his hands which of course wouldn't be the first time since Rome took over but the crowd also needs Pilate uh, because they're the ones that are insisting that they release Barabbas and crucified this so-called king of the Jews. So again, there's Pilate, the politician, if you will, who's trying to placate the crowd by giving them what they want, but at the same time, the crowd is strong-arming the governor, the Roman governor of Judea, to do what they want. And of course, all the while, the priests themselves and Pilate are in this power struggle. Uh, The chief priests need Pilate to do their dirty work because legally they're not allowed to uh, put to death one of their own. Um, And of course Pilate needs the chief priest because he's aware that really they're the ones that are controlling the crowd like no one else. And so they kind of need each other. They need Pilate and Pilate needs them. Uh, this is what I call a Theo political cluster fiasco. <laughs> you could you could actually hear the nervousness sweep across the room. <laughs> theopolitical fiasco. This is religion and politics at its worst. This is what I call two kingdoms in a crowd. The coming together of two agendas. The chief priests, these are the institutional religionists. They have a religious institution that they're trying to maintain, protect, that they get to control. A pilot of course is simply the political imperialist. He's the politician who's been hired by the empire to make sure that the power stays in their control. And the crowd, well, the crowd simply does what they're told. The crowd is the one who's constantly being manipulated, manipulated by those who have the most influence, opinion or media control does this remind you of any place Mhm a little bit And then there's Jesus right in the middle He's not towing the religious line. He's seemingly completely uninterested in Rome's agenda. Even when questioned by Pilate, all he has to say to him is like, yeah, I'm a king, if you say so. In the midst of the circus, Jesus stands unfazed as he's preparing to inaugurate a different kind of kingdom, an alternative kingdom, a kingdom that that world knows nothing of. He's not interested in the politics of Rome, and he's not about to toe the religious institutionalist line. Jesus has something else entirely different in mind. He's a king, to be sure. Come to inaugurate a very real kingdom, without a doubt. But it doesn't seem to fit into either one of these two conflicting kingdoms. And he's not playing the crowd. What kind of kingdom is Jesus Establishing, what kind of kingdom is he about to start up? And most importantly, perhaps for us, what exactly are we a part of? If Jesus wasn't trying to corral the crowd into adhering to a new standard of religious rituals or moral oughts and nots, or if Jesus wasn't attempting to launch competing militaristic empire to show Rome who's really got the power, then what was his kingdom all about? That's the question. I think it's exactly the question that Mark wants to leave us, the reader, wondering to ourselves, who is this king? Because remember, up until this point, this is chapter 15 now. We've only got one chapter left to go. Everyone in the story thus far is confused about who this king is and what his kingdom's really all about. No one gets it. As disciples, for a moment you thought, maybe in chapter eight, Peter's onto something. He's the one who has the revelation. You are the Christ. You are the one we've been waiting for. We'll follow you, whatever it takes. Something went wrong. Because Peter's now nowhere to be found, that's his top guy. If you're not a Bible scholar, Pilate is happy to call him King of the Jews. Um, It's obviously a mockery, because if in fact Pilate, the Roman governor, for one second thought that Jesus actually was a king, i.e., a threat to the empire, he would have happily have had him crucified. But he couldn't see what the problem was. What he could see was that, in fact, the religious institutionalists, the chief priests, the council, the Sanhedrin, they were envious. Because, in fact, Jesus was a threat to their program. You know what the main accusation was that they were bringing against this, quote-unquote, king of the Jews? That apparently, someone told them that Jesus had threatened to tear down the temple their precious temple, the center of the institution, and then rebuild it in three days. That was the rumor going around. And that was the one accusation that they brought explicitly to Pilate. They said, you know what we heard him say? He's gonna tear down the temple. The temple that you renovated for us. It was King Herod, about 30 years prior, who had spent a lot of Roman money renovating the second temple that had been rebuilt about 500 years prior to that. They were in cahoots. They had this, uh, this agreement, this, this system set up to where they could both maintain a little bit of power and, and stay in control. Jesus didn't seem to fit anywhere in any of that. So what is this kingdom? I think there's a few things that we can point out. Number one, this kingdom, the King Jesus, was only moments away from inaugurating. It's first and foremost, a kingdom of the heart. You ever want to do a really, really interesting, just a word search study? You know, you can go online, go to like Bible Gateway. There's, there's, there's a lot of really good um, Bible websites out there. Search keyword heart. And just see it pop up, like nearly a thousand references. Comes up a lot of times in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is constantly talking about heart, heart, heart. He's come to engage with the human heart. For example, Mark Chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus looked around at them with anger, talking about the chief priests, grieved at their hardness of heart. Mark 6, 52, they did not understand what Jesus was saying because their hearts were hardened. Mark 7, 6, Jesus said to the teachers of the law, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me." Mark 7:21: "From within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts: sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Mark 8:17. and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, "Why are you disgusting the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Later, the apostle Paul, uh, who was apprehended by Jesus himself, wrote to the church in Rome saying, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed In Romans 6, 17, he says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teachings to which you were committed. In Romans 5, 5, he says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. The kingdom, the King Jesus came to establish is first and foremost a kingdom that begins in the heart. Is that to say institutions are unimportant? Absolutely not. Otherwise, what are we even doing here? Someone built this building. Someone got organized. Someone someone pays the bills. There is an institution that undergirds the heart behind what we're up to here. The kingdom of the heart, is that to say that politics and good, right, moral legislation is unimportant? Absolutely not. I believe as a follower of Jesus, someone whose heart has been filled with the love of God, I have a responsibility to actually put that love to action And sometimes that absolutely looks like um, politics. Someone needs to run the empire. The Bible says that in fact God himself puts people in positions of authority. Which is why we're also instructed, rather commanded, to pray for those who are in authority. that They might have hearts that are in line with God's own heart. But nonetheless, this kingdom that Jesus has established and is establishing on earth as it is in heaven, it's a kingdom that breaks out in human hearts. Secondly, it's a kingdom that's born out of an act of sacrificial love. Jesus, the king who knew no evil, stared evil in the face and declared, I've come to pay the price for your sin. I've come to lay my life down for you. How ironic is it that Pilate, when being confronted by the crowd, asked the question, what evil has he done? The governor of Rome could, could himself see that this is an innocent man. I mean, sure, he's... He's ticked off a few religious elites. He's messing with their establishment. But what has he actually done? He's not done a thing. And then what happens next? The crowd demands that he's crucified. And so Pilate hands him over to be scourged, mocked, and ultimately crucified. It says that an entire Roman battalion gathers participate in the show. Apparently a battalion would have been like five to six hundred Roman soldiers. Imagine an arena full of professional killers, assassins who've all gathered to see this innocent man spit on, beat, mocked, crowned with thorns, only to be led off for crucifixion after it was all done and over with. you want to talk about evil? What could be more evil than that? Let's all get together and watch the innocent man be beat and spit on almost to death before we finally nail him to a cross. That will be entertaining. What could be more evil than that? And yet it was those soldiers, those killers that Jesus came to die for. I hate to, uh, to ruin the ending. We'll get there next week. But in, in, in towards the end of chapter 15, something brilliant happens. And Mark is such, a, such an incredible writer. As Jesus is breathing his last breath on the cross, there's one man who's said to be standing there facing Jesus as he suffers and dies. It's a Roman centurion. It undoubtedly would have been one of those five or six hundred soldiers who just moments before were sitting in the arena enjoying watching this innocent man suffer evil. And that Rome centurion, he looks at Jesus and he watches him die. And he makes the proclamation, surely this man was the son of God. It's the climax of the story. One of the soldiers who looked on enjoying the mockery, enjoying watching this innocent man be spat on, tortured, and ultimately killed, now looks at Jesus, and he realizes in the moment that this man isn't just another martyr. He would have seen a few come and go. This is truly the son of God who's come to die for the sins of the world. A Roman centurion, he's the only one left at the foot of the cross. It's born out of an act of supreme sacrificial love. Thirdly, this kingdom that Jesus is inaugur- inaugurating is a kingdom for the forgiven. It's a kingdom for the forgiven. Um, Fourteen times, Mark, Jesus ascribes to himself the title. Son of man. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his purpose. He's helping people or trying to help people understand who he really is. And he makes this reference, which is actually back to Daniel 7. We don't have time to get into that. But it's, it's Daniel, one of the ancient prophets, who talks about this quote-unquote son of man who will come on the clouds from heaven to establish God's righteous rule. And Jesus constantly, 14 times, which is significant in itself, two times seven, refers back to this title that he chose to take for himself out of the ancient prophecy of Daniel. I am the son of man. The very first time he uses the title, the context is when he's healing a paralyzed man. A man who was born paralyzed. His friends get him to Jesus. Tear a hole in the roof. Lower him down. Everyone's watching the show. The chief priests are looking on. And Jesus says to them, so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Take up your mat and go home. So that you may know that the son of man that this king and his kingdom has the authority because every kingdom is made up of authority has the authority to forgive sins I say you are healed this kingdom is a kingdom for the forgiven in Luke one of the other synoptic gospels um, there's this beautiful scene where Jesus is reclining at the dinner table with one of the priests, a Pharisee named Simon, ironically. And during dinner, a woman comes in who apparently is known to be an immoral woman, probably a prostitute, village prostitute, comes in. And we're told that the host, Simon, is, is waiting to see what Jesus was because he knows that Jesus knows and everyone knows who this woman is and that she's unclean, and yet she comes in weeping and anoints Jesus with an alabaster jar full of perfume, expensive ointment. And she's crying, she's weeping, and she's worshiping Jesus. And Simon, the priest, is offended because how could Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, let this unclean woman even get near him And he turns to Simon in Luke 7, 47. He says, don't you know that those who are forgiven much love much? Don't you know what kind of kingdom I've come here to establish? I've not come here to condemn broken, hurt, unclean, guilty, shame-filled people. I've come here to heal, to forgive That's the kind of kingdom that I've come to inaugurate, to establish. It begins in the heart. It's born out of an act of sacrificial love and it's propagated. The more the forgiven ones realize just how much I have truly been forgiven. Have you ever had someone be mean to you? Hypothetically. Hypothetically. Have you ever found yourself on the receiving end of like injustice, someone lying about you, someone misunderstanding you, someone accusing you, someone just being like plain evil to you? Have you ever been the recipient of hypocrisy? That's a fun one. Have you ever been betrayed by the very person who you should have been able to trust more than anyone else? Have you ever actually tried to be like, do the right thing for someone, stick up for them, be the good guy, act like a Christian, only to have it thrown back in your face? Man, I could tell you some stories. We, we can be mean. I was going to say those people. But let's be real. We're all culpable. We've all done some stuff. You know how you overcome like the the hard stuff of life. It's when you realize that you yourself need to be forgiven just as much as the next guy. I know how some of you are like, no, 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 come on. Hitler? Yeah, okay, whatever. (laughs) Always pull the Hitler card. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Why? Why? Because given the right, the right set of circumstances, right family, right time in history, right chemistry, right DNA, I am just as likely to be the next genocidal maniac as the next guy. We all have it in us to do the most atrocious things. That should be a death blow to your ego. And if you're sitting here thinking, I'm not that bad, I'm a pretty good guy, I'm decent, I typically do the right thing, I'm certainly not as bad as the, the other person, then Jesus would say to you, I've not come for you. If you think you don't need healing, I'm so sorry, but I've got nothing for you. Because I've come to heal the sick, to save the lost, to open the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, and if you think you don't need anyone's help, that I've got nothing for you. There is no place for you in my kingdom because my kingdom is for the forgiven. And when you realize how much you've been forgiven, you learn to begin to love the way you've been loved. It's, it's the power of the gospel. It's how we get through life without coming out on the other end hard, angry, full of bitterness, unable to love, sometimes very hard to love people. And finally, this kingdom is a kingdom for those who are looking for something more. There was one other character I left out. That is, of course, Barabbas. He's right there in the middle with Jesus. Did I spell it right? Yes. Yeah. Barabbas, what, a, what an unusual character to get thrown into the mix. Don't know much about him other than that he was, uh, he was a bit of a, I don't know, religious zealot, theopolitical uh, outlier, He didn't really fit in with the chief priests, the religious institution, or the empire. He was the guy who said, You know what? Chief priests, rulers of the temple, you're not getting it done. I'm not satisfied just to stand back and maintain the religious status quo. I want to see Israel back on top. I want to see the kingdom of God reestablished for real. And so what did he do? Apparently, he either started or took part in a riot. that apparently got really violent. Says he was a robber and a murderer. It makes me think of like the riot that kicked off about a month just downtown. People got beat. People got hit with rods. If I had to guess there was perhaps one or two people who may have been caught on CCTV who didn't actually go out planning to put someone in the hospital. But man, they're just, they want change. They want it so bad they're willing to risk everything for it. And although the Bible's obviously not condoning the violent behavior of Barabbas, we've got to At least acknowledge the fact that he's the guy who wasn't satisfied with either kingdom. And he said, I want something more, and I'm willing to go to jail for it. I'm willing to risk everything, even crucifixion. If something can happen, Barabbas is that guy. He won't settle for either one of the two opposing kingdoms. And so that puts him right next to Jesus. Isn't that weird? Now, he's a bad guy. Let me just be very clear. Barabbas is a bad guy. But, (laughs) this is the beautiful irony of it. He's also the guy that goes free. Because Jesus is crucified in his place. Jesus dies for him. Barabbas. Took matters into his own hands. He tried violence. It didn't work. He tried violence and it didn't work. Absolute power in the hands of the priests and politicians will always end in violence. Okay, we know that. That's history. Only God is able to judge with equity. Vengeance belongs to God because only God alone can see the motives of my heart and yours. But if you're tired of religion and politics, and do you know what I mean by religion? James, one of the other writers in the Bible, he says that that pure religion, the kind of religion that God accepts is taking care of widows and orphans and remaining pure and undefiled as we live out our lives in this world. That's, that's true religion. So that's religion in the positive sense. I'm, I'm using in the pejorative sense. Religion, this idea that we're, we're building this institution that may or may not have anything to even do with God. We just like our building we just like our traditions we just we think everyone else should should think and act like me because that makes me and my tribe feel more right secure helps my ego that's religion and it stinks jesus doesn't he didn't come to establish a new religion or even propagate the old one he came to fulfill this picture that god had been painting All along, that what in fact he'd really set out to do wasn't just to rescue a handful of people once upon a time, i.e., Israel and Egypt and all of that. He had come to rescue humanity from ourselves, that we would be set free to know him, to walk with him, to live life in a way that we were given life for in the first place, to experience true freedom, to know what it feels like, to be in right relationship with others, with God, with creation itself, and even ourselves. This is the kind of religion that God has always envisioned for us in creation. True religion, or relationship, if you prefer. If you're tired of religion and politics and you're willing to give up everything for a chance at experiencing a new way of life, a life marked by giving and receiving love, a life fueled by the spirit of God dwelling within your heart, manifesting the reality of Jesus' expanding kingdom everywhere you go, if you desire that, then you are invited to the party. His kingdom is for you. Even if you are a robber and a murderer, God's grace is more than enough for you if you'll turn from all of that and give your life to King Jesus. He will change you from the inside out. So, what do you think? Do you like the sound of that kingdom? Amen. Are you tired of religion versus politics? Are you tired of being told that you've got to pick a side? You're either with the conservatives or you join Antifa. I'm sorry. I'm told I'm not to sit I'm not to go there. Too <laughs> political. Guys, if you know me, I'm like the most apolitical person you'll ever meet. I don't want to choose. I don't want to pick a side. Not if these are my only two options. I'm with Barabbas. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I tried violence. It didn't work. I'm for Jesus and his kingdom. I want his kingdom, his love to be poured into my hearts because I'm convinced that in the last 2000 years that's been the thing that's been the constant to change the world that's his kingdom as he's inaug- inaugurated it on the cross and as he will fulfill it when he returns can we stand together please you're now listening to grace city portland